After this, he went down to Capernaum. Now stop. What are we talking about? We're jumping to the middle of a chapter. Last week, Ryan did a great job. I listened to it the other day of preaching on the first few verses of this chapter. And it was um, about Jesus going to the wedding of Cana and turning water into wine. And now we see here that him and his family were going back essentially to home, what would be considered home in that time frame. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has heaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Father God, we thank you that your word is the living word, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce both body and spirit, bone and marrow, that it's able to get in there into the tiny little crevices of our lives and bring life, transformation. Lord, I pray today that you would cut off things that need to be cut off in our life, that you would bring life to those things that were once dead. Lord, that you would bring healing to those places that are hurt and that you will crush those places that are hard. Lord, I pray that your spirit beyond anything that I say would be our teacher Holy Spirit, that you would teach us your word, and you know better than anybody the exact thing that each and every one of us needs to hear today to be more like you. Lord, I pray that we would see the fullness of who you are. In Jesus' mighty and precious name, we pray everybody says, so be it. I've heard this story preached many a times. I've taught this story myself. I think it's important and I think it's purposeful that the Apostle John would put this story second right after the uh, wedding that took place. I think we have a tendency to sometimes as a people just want to look at Jesus as this pleasant, joyful, loving guy that's okay with everything that we do in life. He's just there to encourage us, to build us up, to make us feel good about our choices, our decisions, the say, things we say, the things we do, that Jesus is just there to, to give us a little pat and tell us to go on, child, and, and he's just the great encourager, lover, and he's all full of joy, and he is all of those things, but there is another side to Jesus that most people don't like to look at, that there's a zealousness to Jesus and to look at the things that he is zealous for. 
Now, when you read through this story, I want you to be cautious. I mentioned that this is where we were going to a couple people, and they're all like, righteous anger. And I'm like, no, I've preached on righteous anger before. And uh, it's not, I think that when you get caught up in a topic about a story like this, that it's easy for us to sometimes lose the point. Yes, Jesus got angry. He had righteous anger. We get angry. And we like to say that it's righteous anger, uh, but I, I can't say that my anger is always that righteous, right? If you get caught up in the anger part of the story, then you miss the point of the story. There's more to it than that. This isn't even about the money changers. This isn't about the merchandise in the temple. I want you to fully get a picture of what Jesus was walking into in the moment that this story was written. Jesus wasn't new to Jerusalem. He wasn't new to the temple. This wasn't his first time at the temple. That we, we can see the story of when Jesus was 12 and he decides to stay back from his family and his family thinks he's lost and where do they find him? In the temple. And when was he at the temple? It was during one of the feasts. Three times a year it's expected that you know, the Jews would travel to the temple, that they would pay the temple tax, that they would make sacrifices. And here we have the Passover, and that's exactly what's taking place right now in this story. Jesus more than likely had been to the temple every year since he was 12 years old because he was a devout and faithful Jew. So to think that he came upon the scene of the, the temple and everything that was taking place as if it was something new and it made him angry and he decided to do something about it would be the wrong thinking. What we need to understand is that Jesus purposed that day that when he arrived at the temple that he was going to bring about some sort of truth that needed to come forth in order for things to progress in his ministry and the ultimate goal to take place, which was his death and his resurrection. There's more to it than what we just simply think. He didn't show up to the stages and like, oh, wow, all of a sudden there's animals and there's money changers in the temple. No, what I need you to understand is that when he showed up for everybody that was a part of the religious system, for everybody that went to church, for everybody that did the things that you always do, you show up. Normally we say hi to a couple people. Sometimes we get some snacks, and then we come in and sit down, and then we wait for the first song, and then we have announcement videos, and then we stand up again and we pray, and then we go into these songs that we call worship, and then when the worship is nearing the end, the pastor gets up on the stage, and he says a prayer, and he tells everybody to shake each other's hands, and then sit down, and then he gives a sermon. Like, what I need you to understand is that what Jesus walked into for those who were a part of the religious system at the time was business as usual. It wasn't anything abnormal for those who were there. You may think, well, what about all these different people and the things that they were doing? What about the millions of people that traveled there in order to pay their sacrifice to the Lord to honor God? For them, most of them, like Jesus, had probably been doing it for most of the years of their life. This was business as usual. This wasn't anything new to Jesus either. And so 
he shows up on the scene and, and he does everything that we just read. I want to get some theological uh, points out of the way. This is the doctrinal statements that I believe the Apostle John is writing here. Remember, there's a reason that John wrote his letter after Matthew, Mark, and Luke already had written theirs, and he was battling some truth, some untruths that had been rising up, Gnosticism, different things like that about who Jesus was, even though those three Gospels were there. And so John decides to write a Gospel so that he can battle those truths, right? We went through all of this in chapter one. Am I talking too fast for everybody? And so what we need to understand is there is some points that he's making, some theological points to battle the misbeliefs uh, that had arisen about Jesus. Three of those, real quick. Number one, in this story that he writes, right after chapter one and right after the things that Ryan taught last week, he's letting the reader know once again, Jesus claims to be the son of God. He wasn't just a man. In verse 16, he said to those, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. What was his point? That this was his father's house. If this is his father's house, then he's claiming that he's the son of God. The second theological point that the Apostle John might have wanted to get across to people in that time frame is that Jesus wasn't just a man, but that he claimed a deity. In verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Well, how could something be destroyed like that and be raised up, and he be the one that raised it up? And, of course, the disciples looking backwards that John would include in the story, you know, many, many years later, that he was talking about the resurrection. He would have to have been, and he throws that in his gospel. It wasn't just a thought he had, but obviously we read it, and he wants everybody to understand he was talking about the resurrection. So what's he trying to get across? That Jesus said, I will be the one that raises up my own body. How can you do that if you're just a man? But that he would also be God. The third thing that he wants us to see is that Jesus, of course, in verse 19, when he answered, destroy this temple in the three days, I will raise it up. What was he alluding to? He says he was alluding to the resurrection. That's the key of Christianity. Anybody can die, but not just anybody can be raised again. He alludes to the resurrection, but not just to the resurrection. What John also wants us to see is that there is an authority that comes with the resurrection. Now, yes, the apostle John is, you know, talking about this to bring further evidence to who Jesus is. These are solid, foundational truths of Christianity. But there's so much more that we can gain from studying this moment in Jesus' life. I think Jesus went to the temple that day for one purpose, to throw out and overturn business as usual. I don't know how it is in your life, but in, in my life, sometimes everyday routine become, can become business as usual. We get used to doing the same things every single day. Yes, there's some sort of variances that take place throughout those days, but for the most part, 
I wake up in the same place. I go to bed in the same place. I go to work in the same place. I travel around and see most of the same faces. I have the same wife, thank God, that, you know, I'm able to converse with throughout the day and see my kids, my friends, my family. Like most of my life is business as usual. The problem with business as usual is that you got to be careful because sometimes business as usual leads to busyness and business that then causes you to be forgetful. Anybody get like that? I don't know. Like I told my wife, I'm not kidding. In the last couple of weeks, I've been trying uh, to take a really cold shower. I'll tell you why. So I don't know what goes on. The other day I went and I threw my plate in the garbage instead of the food on my plate. This morning I woke up and I got ready. I was standing in the shower. I, I got done with my little spongy thing that my wife has me scrub myself with. I think I got done with it. Because when I, when I was, I don't want to give you guys like bad images here, but like I don't know if you're like, so literally I shaved in the shower and then... I, I thought I was rinsing off and getting out, and then I thought, I haven't, I haven't actually, like, washed myself yet. So then I washed myself, and while I was washing myself, I thought, I think I already did this. <laughs> so I thought, man, I don't want to go to church and preach a sermon and not have my memory, like, my forgetfulness. And so I'm going to take a cold shower. And because I read where, like, taking that last few minutes of cold, like, creates some sort of, I don't know what they are, chemical reaction that helps your mind and makes you remember things better and things like that. So I, I get out of the shower, and I'm getting ready, and I thought, babe, I think I forgot to brush my teeth. Because normally I would brush my teeth either as I'm getting in the shower or I'm in the shower. I bring my electric truth to, now you guys know my morning routine, but so, but don't, I'm saying like, I, I forgot to brush my teeth. So I'm getting dressed and I go get my toothbrush. I brush my teeth. I wash out, to, walk out to the kitchen and I'm like, man, my pants feel loose. I forgot to put my belt on. So I go in there and I put my belt on and I realize there's so many things right now, babe. And I was going to take a cold shower right before I got out. I was going to turn it to cold and I forgot. So I even forgot that. So then I go out and I'm going to grab my sermon and read through it. So I have an opportunity to read through what I wrote over the weekend. And I can't find my sermon. So I'm panicking. I'm looking all over, out in my car, outside, nowhere. And the problem is when I was here on Saturday putting in my notes, I changed some things in my sermon, but I only changed them on what would have been on the church computer in the back, not on my computer. So I have to call Ed. Ed, will you print my sermon, set it in the office for me so when I get there. So then my wife says, babe, did you look in your little black book? I'm like, well, I didn't even have it anywhere to put it in my black book. She goes, well, just check. So I go in there, I find my little black book where it's at in our office. And sometime yesterday, I must have clipped it, put it in my black book, and spaced off and put the black book away rather than laying where, where it was, and there was my sermon. Can you imagine what a morning that was before I have to stand up here and deliver God's word? Forgetfulness. And my wife says to me, babe, I think that your life has been so busy lately. You are literally starting to forget all sorts of things. Now, today was hopefully unusual compared to most weeks, though I have those days, and I know we all do. But so often what happens is when you're living life in business as usual is that you become forgetful. And if you're not careful, 
one of the first things you forget is the Lord. Now, none of us want to admit that, but the truth is this. You start missing church, church ain't going to save you. But let me tell you something. It certainly helps you keep being in a place where it will keep that fire alive and keep it in the front of your memory, remembering who you're going to serve and why you serve him. You will get up and you'll have so many things on your mind or throughout your day that all you're thinking about is a million different things, but what you're not thinking about is the Lord of all those things. You're too busy to take time to worship, to pray. Why? Because it's business as usual. And so it's not just in everyday life that we get so busy that we start to cut things out that involve God. But as you can see in the temple, these people were doing business as usual, but they were missing something. The most important aspect of why they should have been there. Jesus, he comes upon the scene. And I, I want you to understand, I, I looked up the population of Jerusalem in Jesus' day. There's different numbers, but it's somewhere between 20,000 people and 40,000 people lived in the city of Jerusalem. During the feast, people would come from all over to celebrate the Passover, specifically. The population would go from 20 to 40,000 to over 2.5 million people in the city. All of them there to go to the temple. Now, if you went to the temple every single Sunday, you might see the usual crowd, and it was business as usual. But what you might also see at a Passover is all of a sudden things have swelled up to two and a half million people who all need to exchange their money because the temple only took a certain type of money. They wouldn't take foreign money that had images of other gods or Caesars or whatever. So there had to be money changers. Don't think that the money changers were necessarily bad. If you ever traveled overseas, you have to go to a, quote, money changer in order to purchase the money that you're going to use when you're in a different country. Right? You don't go to... If you go to Mexico, it's wise to switch some of that over into pesos. If you go into Kenya, into shillings, you're, you're, you're doing that. That's what they were there for. That was the purpose. It was actually, in theory, to help the people who were traveling to worship God. And, and then you had the people selling the animals. And the people selling the animals don't think that they were necessarily bad. They were there selling animals because if you're traveling, and back then they didn't have airplanes, cars, or trucks, or trailers to pull horses, or oxen, or cattle, or sheep. When they're traveling, the last thing they want to do is be hauling a bunch of animals to sacrifice at the temple. So what did the temple do? They provided animals in order for people to sacrifice. So all the things that were taking place were still business as usual in order to help the people that were coming to worship. But you show up at the temple and listen, imagine the busyness and the business that was taking place when you came to worship. Two and a half million people. Everybody's there in those few days and they're there exchanging money at multiple tables of money changers. There's animals everywhere in the courts. Imagine the people, they're all talking. What does it sound like when there's when there's just 100 people all talking at once. And then 
you know what, there's somebody that they're hard of hearing, and so they can't hear what's, what's being said to them, and so they raise their voice up, right, because they can't hear over everybody else talking, and then pretty soon these people hear this old guy over here, and he seems like he's yelling at the money changer, and so they have to raise their voice up in order to hear each other, and then it's just like this, this thing that takes place where whenever there's mass amount of people together and they're talking, the volume just seems to go up. And so there's all of this noise from everybody talking. And I don't know what it would have been like for two and a half million people to make sacrifices in the temple, but to have enough goat or sheep, to have enough oxen, to have all the doves. I can imagine there was some cooing going on. There was some oxen noises taking place. There was some baaing taking place. There, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on, noises everywhere. And I also can't imagine if you've got that many animals for two and a half million people to make sacrifices, what kind of mess was being made. So imagine if you show up to worship and someday you walk in here on a Sunday and it's completely full of people, all talking, animals everywhere, the place looks messy, how you would feel about, I thought we came to worship the Lord this morning. So it says that Jesus made a whip. He took the time to actually grab some things and weave them together. I don't know the thoughts that he had while he was weaving that together or the prayers that he prayed as he was talking to his father, but he was about to crack the whip and take care of business. Again, what was taking place was business as usual. It's what would take place at every feast. Two and a half million people show up. So... Why was Jesus so angry at this time? What might be Jesus's issues? Well, quickly, three things that I'm going to mention, but I don't think that the first couple are the primary issues. Number one, it's potential that there was unfair trade taking place. The money changers are tipping the scales in their favor. They're charging excessive fees for the exchange of money. And so what they're doing is they've turned the church into a money-making system and that, that that church became all about the money. And so what we don't know is, I've read through some historical documents, is that the chief priest at that time, Annas, and his sons, they controlled the temple and everything that took place they were known for their greed, so much so that they were all uh, arrested, and I think they were even killed several years later. So for them, it was about the money. That's what it had turned into. We're going to do these things to help people out, but really it's about us getting money, and so they, they jack up the prices to trade money. And, of course, they jacked up the prices of the animals that they could buy. I read somewhere, I tried to find it so I didn't lie to you guys where I read it and I couldn't find it again, but it said something like you could buy a, a dove. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but to buy a dove for most, uh, was for most poor people the only thing they could afford, and that's why the, the opportunity to have a dove there was for them. Like God makes it okay if you can't afford to bring an oxen or a sheep the poor people can buy a dove. And so outside of the temple, uh, ways away, you could buy a dove for very cheap. 
but it was like 10 times the amount if you stepped into the temple to buy a dove at the temple. I don't know how you feel about this, but to me, it's like we buy water at Costco, and even if we buy the larger bottles, they'll have the little pop sip tops, not the takeoff tops, it's still about 50 cents a bottle. And then you go into the, the arena in Spokane when there's something taking place, and you probably pay five or six bucks for that same 50-cent bottle of water. Right? What a ripoff. And yet, what makes it even worse is this was meant to be something to help the poorer people out, not to rip the poor people off. And so there's this unfair trade taking place. Jesus actually doesn't even mention in the Gospel of John about the unfair trade. And you might be saying, but yeah, you know that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and the Synoptic Gospels that Jesus, when he comes to the temple, he says that, you know, you've turned this into a den of thieves or robbers, that it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. But most uh, theologians, many, and I've looked up several, they believe that this temple cleansing was different than the temple cleansing that the Synoptic Gospels talk about that it's quite possible that Jesus, because John puts this at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the rest of them put it at the end of Jesus' ministry, and so the answer when you look at the differences between the two and the times and when it happened is not, none of us know for sure, but I believe it, and several people that I looked up, that's what they also studied and came out, that Jesus did it twice. And so... If you look at John's gospel, he actually describes three Passovers, and it was in the first Passover of Jesus' ministry that he cleansed the temple. Now, mind you, he didn't need to mention it the second time because the other gospels already mentioned Jesus cleansing the temple the second time. Like, it was important enough that Jesus not only did it once, but he went in and cleaned house twice, right? The only thing that Jesus mentions in the gospel of John is that they had turned his house into a house of merchandise, like, they were sitting there selling things and ripping people off. The Greek word for merchandise is emporium. Anybody ever shop at the emporium? That's not even a store anymore, I don't think, right? But I remember going shopping there. And it's just simply a place where trades, known as the place where trade is carried on. Like, the idea that this is the place where trade is carried on instead of being the house of God is a big deal to Jesus. But probably the biggest deal to Jesus is number three. It's about the location. It said in verse 14, and he found in the temple. Everybody say in. So when you study the history of this, that the high priests and those who took care of the temple, they actually set this stuff, stuff up for Jews that were traveling. And originally they would sell animals and do money changing like in a different part of town. And then they moved it closer to town over the years. And then eventually they moved it into the court. Now, the location is the biggest deal to Jesus because the court that they moved it into was called the court of Gentiles. And what was the court of Gentiles? The court of Gentiles was the outer court of the temple that was supposed to be made available for those who were non-Jews coming to worship Yahweh. They believed in the same God as the Jews, but the Jews didn't allow them to come inside in the wall, in the inner court where they could be. They 
did allow them to at least have a place outside. But when it came to the time of the feast where it was all about we're going to make the most money this time of year, and so we're going to have our fundraisers, and we're going to have the scales tipped in our favor, and we're going to charge exorbitant prices for animals, then that overrode the importance of creating a location for outsiders to be able to worship. It was meant to be a place for them to worship the Lord, and yet they valued money more than they valued a place for worship. And that was the big issue. Everyone there thought it was business as usual. It may have looked all right from the outside if you came from Africa to worship the Lord and thought, well, it's okay, things are a little bit more expensive, but this is what we need to do. But the heart of worship, the heart of the temple, was deceitful. Scamming people, the poor being taken advantage of, valuing temple finances over temple worship, not having a place set up for all people to be able to honor God in prayer and in worship. And so Jesus, in his anger, those are the reasons he chases all of these people out. Now he gives this response in verse 18 or they ask him some questions i want us to look at this because now because jesus had issues they had issues and so in verse 18 it says the jews answered to his actions and they said to him what sign do you show us since you do these things what signs do you show us since you just chased everybody out of the temple? All of the animals, you cracked the whip, you, you, you busted this place up. What sign do you show us since you've done these things? Now, first of all, I can't tell you that I know who the Jews are. I think, I believe I know who the Jews are, or at least an idea. Like it just says the Jews. If you read in other books, you'll find out that it was more than likely some of the leaders. It could have been the people getting chased out, but more than likely, it was at least like the temple guards because they had temple guards that would have confronted Jesus. It could have been the Levitical temple workers. The Levites were the ones that took care of the temple, and if you're somebody that your job is to make sure the temple's clean and all of that, some guy starts thrashing the place. You might step up to him and say, you know, what sign do you have in order to do these things? It could have been some of the religious leaders. The Pharisees might have been there. More importantly, the Sadducees, which were even more powerful than the Pharisees because they were the ones that had the high priest and would oversee the temple. It could have been any of those people in some place of authority that would have stepped up to Jesus and said, what sign do you have to do these things? They had issues with Jesus' issue. Now, when you hear this, what do you think? In, in a lot of people's mind, they might think they were asking for Jesus to do a sign. But what they were really asking is, who gave you the authority to come into my life, into our life? Who gives you the authority to tell us what to do, to tell us we need to clean our house? Who gives you the authority? And don't think that they're bad, because the truth is this. You all live somewhere right? And if somebody walked into the place that you live and they started tossing tables and flipping your furniture and throwing dishes and telling you to get out until this place gets cleaned up, you would probably be standing in your house 
And in North Idaho, you'd probably either have a rifle or a pistol or something, and you'd be putting a stop to this situation right now. And more than likely, if that person wasn't shot because you thought he was a crazy man who busted into your home and started thrashing stuff and had no rights, you might say, what gives you the right to come into my house? Who gives you the authority? Show me a sign of what gives you the authority that tells me I have to leave the place that, where I live. Like, show me a piece of paper. The courts better have ordered this. A judge better have said this. There better be a badge behind this somewhere. Who in the world, what is your sign that tells me that I have to leave this place and things that have to change? Things have to change. So really what they were doing isn't just asking for a sign, but they were challenging the authority of Jesus. And we might think that's a crazy thing. Who are they to challenge? Like, this is his father's house. In hindsight, you know what? We're, we're 2020, right? Because we're all righteous, holy people. We can see it for what it is. Who are they to challenge Jesus? Of course, he had the authority. Don't think for a second that in our own lives, we don't challenge the authority of Jesus. In modern terms, I picture, the, well, it, I picture those guys coming up and, like, they're the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and they're probably like, I'm the Sadducee of this place. Who gives you the authority? I'm the, I'm the temple guard of this place, Jesus. Who gives you the authority? And we think things like this. We think, I'm, the, I'm a community leader here. Right? Who gives me the who gives you the authority? I'm I'm a policeman. Who gives you the authority to tell me what to do? I'm the pastor of this place. Who gives me gives you the authority to, to tell me what to do? See, I can put that in job title, but you can put it, I'm the head of this house. Who gives you the authority to tell? I'm the, I'm the one that's in charge of my family. Who gives you the authority? I'm the mom. Who gives you the authority? I'm the dad. I'm, I'm the oldest child. I'm, you know, a student here. I'm an American citizen. Who gives you the authority? I'm an adult. Who gives you the authority? And what you're saying is, forget Jesus' words. Right? Every time we say when somebody tries to bring God's word to us that who are you because this is who I am, we do this with Jesus' word. You have no rights. Who are you? Throw that Bible out the window. And we do what we want to do because we think we're somebody special. And we're Americans. We're adults. We're in charge of our house. We're the parent. We're the, the boss. We're whatever area of influence you have in life where you're over somebody else. You will rise to that place and you will think that you're somebody. And you will reject the authority of Jesus that's trying to be brought into your life. And if any one of us thinks that we don't do that, we're fools. I can tell you, Warren Sperry, in my early years, sat me down twice with, with a list of things he thought I was doing wrong. Do you know what my response was initially? Like, listen, okay, try not to blow up. 
in my mind, who do you think you are? My wife will tell you after almost 30 years of marriage, the first thing Corey does is go on defense. If I even slightly think that you're trying to bring some sort of correction, and it's biblical even, into my life, I can't even help it. Like, I, I, I can. But it's a hard growth process in life to sit there and have somebody try and bring God's word into your life, and you take it and say, you know what? You're right. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. And we're going to change this. You know what those guys didn't do when Jesus cleansed the temple? They didn't say, you're right. We've turned this outer court of worship into a place of busyness and business. I don't know who you are, Jesus, but you're speaking the truth, and we're sorry, and make a change. Instead, they came against him, and they had an authority issue. How many of us have an authority issue that hinders us from fulfilling what God wants us to be in life? The second thing that they probably had an issue was an issue of doubt. They were asking Jesus for a sign because they doubted who he was. He just said, this is my father's temple. Well, I really doubt that it's your father's temple. Like, show us a sign. And how often in life do we continue to ask God for a sign in our life in order to know if something's right or it's okay or whatever it might be? Like, I'm not knocking. There's times I've prayed, God, show me the way, show me a sign, speak to me, and sometimes he shows things out here. But when we're constantly needing God to show us signs in order to help show us the way or his way in life, there's an issue. Like, it was okay for Gideon to probably do what he did the first time, but if that's the way that he lived his life every single time, if you know the story of Gideon, then there's an issue. Because he should have grown to a place where he knew what God's heart, where he knew what his word was, that he knew what his desire was. He didn't have to be asked. He didn't have to ask. He didn't have to question. He just did because he knew what was right. And all too often, we're like, we need another sign. We need another miracle. We need another thing in life before we will choose to do what is right before the Lord. The Jews had issues with Jesus. Where did my sermon go? What I love is Jesus' answer to them. You know that the religious leaders were always trying to trip Jesus up and catch him in saying something that was wrong. Like Jesus could have said, you want a sign? Bring some water. And he could have turned it into wine like he just did days before and given them a sign. He could have taken an animal that was on the altar, had just been sacrificed, and brought it back to life. But you know, had he answered their question with what they wanted, who would have been an authority still? They would have. And it never would have been enough. It's never enough. 
They would have just asked for another sign and another sign and another sign from Jesus, and they would have been the ones that were in control. No, do this. No, do that. I want you to do this over here. We still aren't sure. Jesus, can you, can you go over here and do that? Jesus, can you do take care of this right here? Jesus, you go over there and do that? And, and it's not Jesus in control when that's the attitude in the situation. It's that person that's still in control. Is anybody listening to what I just said? Like we're bossing Jesus around. I still need you to prove yourself over here, to prove yourself over there. And no, you know, that was nice that you did that. I can recognize that. You're a good God right there. But what about this area right here? I still need you to prove yourself right here. And who's in control of life? And so Jesus just doesn't go down that road. He doesn't give them the sign that they're asking for. Instead, he gives them a sign that will take place and because they're blind to truth, they do not even recognize what he's saying. And he says to them, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Yes, this is pointing to Jesus' deity. He has the power to raise his own body. And in this, you can also see the triune aspect of who God is. Because in other verses, it's talking about how the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Paul talks about how the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And so Jesus here says, I will raise my body from the dead. It's, it's referencing Jesus as God, the triune aspect of God, and that he raises Jesus from the dead. Yes, after dying on the cross and being resurrected from the grave, you've got to understand Jesus has now been given all authority. However, what I want us to know is in this is, is a not-so-subtle description of a radical change in the worship of Jews. This would be radical for anybody that recognized it, even the disciples after they recognized what Jesus was saying. The Apostle John, when he put this, he was referring to his own body, to the resurrection. What was being said to them would be like me telling you guys, I know that you're used to coming here and worshiping on Sundays. I know that your worship can be given in your prayer closet. I know your worship can take place when you're listening to music in your car. I know your worship can take place in this building, but now your worship will come through me. You guys would be like, Corey's gone crazy. What do you mean? You're telling me that now it's going to go through you? Like, who are you? Like, that's craziness, right? But what Jesus really was just saying, when you understand the religious system at the time and them doing business as usual, it's all they ever knew. And Jesus is saying, you know what? I'm not talking about this temple where it's business as usual. I'm talking about my own body. And he refers to his body as now becoming the temple of God. And that's a big deal to the Jews who were used to worshiping this same way for over 1,500 years. The temple was the place where man met with God. And now Jesus is the place where God will meet with man. The temple was the place where God's laws were stored. Jesus will become the fulfillment of those laws. The temple was the place where animals would be sacrificed for others. And now Jesus becomes the ultimate sacrifice for all. The temple was the center 
of Israel's worship. Every Jew in the world knew where to go and worship. Jesus would become the new temple and the center of a new covenant worship. Jesus had a zeal to make sure that his body became the temple of the presence of God. By his zeal, he would purify his temple, first to the destruction and then the glorification of his own body. But afterwards, he doesn't stop with the transition that his body is now just the temple of God. Instead, in his word, it states, and the Apostle Paul would write these words, that our body as believers become the temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, Paul is trying to write to the Christians, those who have accepted Jesus Christ, the presence of God reigns inside of them, and he would say, do you not now know, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? But do you know who I am? Right? Who has authority over this body? Don't you know who I am? And Paul writes to Christians and says, it is no longer your own body. If you have Christ in you, it is now the temple. The temple of God. For you were bought at a price. Jesus' giving of his life. His sacrifice. Therefore, what should your response be? Oh, I can party with the best of them. God's grace, his forgiveness, it's all going to be okay. He'll give me a little pat on the butt like a football player. Get back in the game, Corey. You can keep on going. No. Paul is like, you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, and in your spirit, which are God's. My body, my spirit, they're God's. God owns them. Here's the practical challenge to today's story. According to the words written to the early church Christians, it's not, is not Jesus still zealous for a temple to be cleansed? Do we not realize that when we read this story, we can be quick to judge those foolish people in the temple 2,000 years ago and be like, yes, Jesus needed. They were ripping people off. They were selling animals for more than they were worth. They were tipping the scales. Of course, Jesus needed to cleanse the temple. They were in a place where outsiders should have been able to worship. Of course, Jesus should have cleansed the temple. We can be quick to judge all of these people in the temple, and yet is not Jesus still just as zealous back then for the temple that he had then as he is for the temple that's us right now? It says in God's word, what is our issue, right? Our issue of Christians if we're the temple of God, how is your temple, how's your temple right now? I want to ask you these questions. If Jesus is still zealous for a cleansing of the temple, how is your temple right now? Do you know that oftentimes when they would look at the religious leaders of the day, those people that were following, they would call them whitewashed? 
What does that mean? They were like scrubbed clean of any good influence in life. Like, you guys are completely whitewashed. I have to ask myself at times, have I allowed myself to become whitewashed? There's no color. There's no difference. When people look at me, what do they see? I may look clean on the outside, but what's really on the inside? Am I there making a difference? Does anybody hear me say anything? Or am I just trying as a whitewashed person to blend in with everybody else? I don't want to be confrontational. I don't want to create hurt. I don't want to create conflict. I don't want to create any sort of division. I I just want to please people. I want people to like me. I want people to be happy. I don't want them to come against me. I don't want them to come against my family. I don't want to have to argue. I don't want to have to fuss. I don't want to have to fight. I don't want anything that might create any sort of controversy or conflict in life. And therefore, as a Christian, I've allowed myself to become whitewashed. Have we allowed ourselves to become the money changers? Business as usual numbs us. And so quickly, things in life become about the things of life rather than the things of God. Are we overwhelmed with the busyness of necessary things? I'm not even talking about evil things, wicked things, sinful things. I'm talking about business as usual in our day-to-day life. Have we allowed business as usual to numb us? We've become so busy in life that it numbs us to the God that's inside of us, that wants to get out of us, that wants to be glorified. Have we made a place in our own heart for prayer and worship? Once again, do we have authority issues? Or are we always needing God to prove himself? Jesus Christ, just like what we knew of in the temple, in the early days of the temple, back in the desert, where God's presence reigned, wants to reign inside of you and I. Every moment of every day, He wants to be in every area of our life, not just our area of our spiritual life. He wants to be in our personal life, our relationship life. He wants to be in our business life. It bothers me when when I'm somewhere and somebody will say something like, you know what, we we can't talk about Jesus right here because of where we're at. Like, I, I have a hard time functioning in a place like that. And I'm not saying that we don't be respecters of persons, but the truth is, and I've told some of you stories like this before. I was at Dave Smith's as a salesman, and one of the owners came to me, and I had scriptures on the side of my monitor that either would offend people or make them ask questions or whatever as I sold cars, and it would often bring up great conversations. Maybe it made people like me and I didn't know. Maybe it cost the business car sales. I don't know. But I remember one of the owners came to me and told me one time that I had to take all of that Christian stuff off the side of my computer monitor. That was not when they were the skinny thing. That's back when they were the big things. For those who remember those, there was plenty of uh, acreage for me to park Christian stuff on the side. And so they told me, take that, I want you to take that stuff off. 
because this is a place for business. And I said, no. And so we had this argument. And I simply said, if that's what it means that I can't show who I am when I'm helping people in sales, then I'm, I don't care. Fire me. And he said, leave it on there. But had he, I'm not, I wasn't going to be whitewashed. I would have found a different job because it's not just what I believe, it's who I am. Jesus wants to be in every area of your life, and he wants to be glorified in those areas. But if people don't even know that he's in you, then there's an issue. You've certainly decided that he can be in certain parts, but not other parts, and to me, that's whitewashing. But when you allow Jesus into your life, we've got to understand something. There will be times where he will fill your table with feasts. And there will be times where he comes in and he decides to flip the same table that he's filled a thousand times. Last week, Ryan preached on Jesus turning the water and the wine, which was a great message on the resurrection, the blood. I didn't hear, I've never even heard some of the things that he taught us. But the practical side of that story was Jesus blessing others with an overflow. 900 glasses of wine, is that what it was? 900 bottles of wine? Holy moly. Holy. Talk about Jesus blessing and overflow. The Jesus of joy. And that's where people want to get stuck. We just want the Jesus of joy in our life. If we're not careful, we get, we get whitewashed. We just think that, you know, he's going to be this loving, gracious, and merciful God. Like I said at the beginning, he just wants to bless you. You want good things to constantly be happening in your life. I don't want anything bad to happen. Jesus, watch over me, protect me. And, and I just always picture Jesus with having a smile on his face towards me, right? But John starts the gospel with two stories purposefully. The first one to show, yes, he's loving, yes, he's kind, yes, he's gracious and merciful and full of overflow. But the second aspect of Jesus, you better have in your life too, because he is a zealous God that is jealous for his people, who doesn't want them worshiping other things. And if he needs to come into the house and start flipping tables in your body, the temple, then he's going to do that. And there will be messes that will be made because he is a good God and he's willing to care for you enough that he gets angry and he's going to kick some booty until you get in line. We need both. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16, and I'm going to try and hurry up and close. This is Peter, post-resurrection, two Christians, and he still says to them, but as he who called you as a Christian is holy, he's holy. You also be holy in some of your conduct. But, but, but God is the one that makes me holy. Jesus is my righteousness. Like, it'll happen over time. It will if your heart is pointed towards him. The goal is to be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, God's word, be holy, for I am holy.
Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, some of my favorite verses for counseling men. Husbands, love your wives. How are you supposed to love your wives? Just as Christ also loved the church. How much did he love the church? He gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That there would be such a washing of the atmosphere in our lives by his word that it would continually be sanctifying us and cleansing us. And so there's always this atmosphere that we can position ourselves within that we know is going to help make us holy in God's eyes. Why? Not just because he's telling us to, but he has a desire for us. He wants to present us to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, which is us, the church, Christians, but that we should be holy and without blemish. Now, you can look at that as, you know, oh, you know, God's grace and mercy and love and joy and all of that kind of stuff, but I read through these verses, and I allow the fear of God to convict my heart and say, Corey, where have you been lately? What are you doing? I'm not preaching to any of you. I will literally look in my life every day over the last week as I'm studying, preparing, and continue and question myself and what I do and where I'm at and look at this. And I honestly think as a pastor sometimes, I sure hope when Jesus comes back to present the church that I'm not doing something or have done something that would dishonor. And I blow it and I make mistakes, and I'm not saying like, hey, you're going to go to hell for, you know, making mistakes, sinning. But I'm saying, where is the position of your heart? A zeal for holiness is what this story is about. That temple, the idea of holy was meant to be set apart, different from every other place of business in the world. It, like, if you're going to have business, you have all of these businesses over here, but the temple's set apart, set apart for something else, for prayer and for worship. Now, that temple is you. You can have all of this worldly stuff and business going on in the world, but you are supposed to be set apart for something different, for prayer, communication with God, for worship, your heart upon him, glorifying him, and all that you say, do, and think. Now listen, there's no coincidence that Jesus chose to do this on this day, not by accident, not because all of a sudden righteous anger swelled up inside of him, but because it was the celebration of the Passover. And what do they do in the Passover? There's a tradition that all Jews follow that started with the Israelites coming out of Egypt. And God said to them, I want you to remove all the sin, all of the leaven out of your house. And so they cleansed their house so that when God passed over, they were clean and he led them out. And, and so they followed this tradition every year at Passover. 
Jews, Messianic Jews, Orthodox Jews, they will go throughout their house and they remove everything that has leaven within their house and they bring it outside of their house, symbolic of removing the sin from their lives. And so in this time, in this season, as Jews in Jerusalem were there, they had all been focusing all week long. They even make kids games out of it to go and search for it and find the hidden sin, the hidden leaven, and take it out of the house. And let's make sure everything's clean. That Jesus says, in this time, I'm going to clean my father's house. They were all well aware of what should have been going on in their own house. And now Jesus says, it's time to clean the house of the Lord. And then he refers to that house as his own body which becomes our body, and he's saying, now listen, make this personal. There should be that time where you're looking into your own life and you're saying, I need to remove all of the leaven, all of the sin. I need to make sure this place is ready and clean to do what God has called me to do, to follow after him, whether there's an army around us, a sea in front of us. I know that he is with me. And it's not because I have to, it's because I want to. You know that we're coming upon a season of time right now. We just put up the video, of course I wasn't here last Sunday, it made a plea last Sunday, of the fall feast. Do you know what the fall feasts are representative of? They're called the, the days of awe. They're called the high holy days. The high holy days. And the high holy days start with Rosh Hashanah and Feast of Trumpets. And the idea around that as you get into the holiest days, the, the Day of Atonement and the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles is that in the Feast of Trumpets, before the last trumpet sounds, the idea of the prophecy that Jesus hasn't fulfilled yet in his return is that we would be introspective. And we take this when we celebrate the Feast of Trumpets and we... Look inside. We cast stones into the water as, as a release of the things that we've held on to that we shouldn't. It's a time for us to recognize, you know, where we've been over the last year and where we're going and the changes that we want to make spiritually. Like this is a, a time right now for us to, to look at our lives, to hear the word this morning and say, Jesus, if there needs to be some tables flipped in my life right now, flip them. If there needs to be some money changers cast out of my life right now, man, cast them out. If you need to tell some things to get out of me right now, like he did with the doves, the, the sellers of the doves, man, Jesus, please come and cleanse this temple. We need to have that same zeal in our own lives for righteousness, for holiness. Because zeal carries you the extra step when others would have quit. It moves you to action when others are fearful. It focuses you on what is really important in life rather than being distracted or distracted by business as usual. I'm going to close with this verse. Romans 12, 9, 11. In the ESV, it's, it's labeled marks of the true Christian. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. What is evil? Oh, Satanic stuff, the devil, all this crazy stuff going on. Yeah, that's evil. Abhor it, hate it. What is evil? 
not obeying God, sin in our life, hate it. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. This morning, our issues are something that Jesus wants to bring to light and for us to cleanse in our own lives, to, to say, Jesus, come in and, and take care of this. When we see his zeal for holiness, it's not because he doesn't like us. It's because he loves us. The Jesus of joy loves us enough that he's zealous to bring to light the issues in our life to make us free in him. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now for conviction. For conviction to fall upon our hearts. You and only you know our true heart. We might think that we are doing good things, but the heart behind those good things is wicked. We deceive ourselves with our own heart, Lord. There's a time for the celebration in Cana, and there's a time for the cleansing of the temple. You were passionate enough about this that you would do it in the beginning of your ministry and you would come back right before the end and do it again. Father, I pray this morning that 2,000 years later we would see your word, hear your word. Lord, that we would know your love for us. And we wouldn't wait until we're caught off guard because we're caught up in the busyness of life, the business as usual of life, but that we would say right here, right now, we have an opportunity. We surrender to you. Before you come in and, and have to clean house and catch me off guard, Lord, I want you to take care of things right here, right now. Lord, these places where I've had bitterness in my life, where I've had anger in my life, these places where I've been hurt, these places where I blame you, these places where I've held on to things that I shouldn't hold on to that keep me from, from reaching you, these things that I hold against other people, these sins that I continue to get caught up in, stuck in, it's hard to let go of. Lord, I surrender every one of these things to you. Lord, I repent of any place in my life where I've whitewashed who I am in you. Any time that I've held back because I have a fear of man or I don't want people to judge me or I don't want people to be in conflict with me. Any time that I, I've, I've become too sensitive that I don't want to, to have people look at me in a different way or I, would want to be, I don't want to be looked at as the odd person out because I choose you and your ways. Lord, right now I just, I repent of any time in my life where I know that you have the authority, and yet I still question that authority. Not 
verbally, but by my actions. Because I still continue to choose to do the things that I do. I say, yes, you're the authority, you're the Lord over my life. And then I continue to take my life back into my own hands and do what feels good to me, what I think is right, what I'm okay with, time after time. Lord, I'm sorry for not making you the Lord in every area of my life. Father, I I repent this morning for my attitude, my stinking attitude. Yeah, we can look at this story and we think righteous anger, and so often even when we think we're right in our anger, we're wrong. Lord, there's so many things, so many areas, but I'm thankful for who you are. Lord, I pray as we stand and close in worship that you will continue to show us these areas of our life. If there's anything that that we're not thinking of, Lord, I pray right now in this season where I just sense the nearness of your return, that, Lord, we, we would hear your voice, that we would seek to surrender those things and be obedient to your word, your ways. In Jesus' mighty and precious name we pray.